You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going to tell the story of Venetian explorer Alvise Catamosto. Catamosto is not a well-known explorer, but he made two voyages for Prince Henry the Navigator in the 1450s to West Africa, and is credited as one of the discoverers of the Cape Verde Islands. I'm doing this episode about Catamosto right after the series on Henry the Navigator, because it is a nice representation of many voyages of discovery conducted under the aegis of the Portuguese prince at this time. I have selected Catamosto because, unlike many of the captains sailing under Henry, we have a record of his voyage written by the man. It is one of the few published works that have survived the era of Prince Henry, and it is considered one of the most reliable. All of this makes this episode sort of an addendum to the Henry the Navigator series. I hope you enjoy it. Now before we start, a couple of notes. First, I want to thank everyone for their support of the show. Some of you help out financially, which is awesome. But a great way to support the podcast is to simply tell others about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever. No advertising is more powerful or appreciated than you recommending the show to family and friends. So take our web address, explorerspodcast.com, and share it, letting your history nerd friends know how amazingly awesome the show is. They will thank you later. Second note, today's episode is derived from a very old text, and the accuracy is probably not that great. But as mentioned before, Catamosto's book is considered pretty reliable but know that there will be discrepancies depending on what version of whatever translation you find of his book. It's not a big deal, but I wanted to mention it. That is it for notes, let's go. Alvise Catamosto, or Alvide Catamost, was born in 1432 at the Catamosto, a palace on the Grand Canal of Venice from which his name derives. Catamosto's father was Giovanni de Mosto, a Venetian civil servant and merchant. His mother was Elizabeth Quirini and was from a leading family in Venice. He had two younger brothers. So from that description, it's pretty obvious that Catamosto came from a well-to-do family. At the age of around 10, Catamosto would go to sea, sailing on Venetian galleys around the Mediterranean, including to the Barbary coast and Crete. Here he would have been learning how to become a merchant. In 1451, the 19-year-old Catamosto would be appointed as a noble officer of the Marine Corps of Crossbowmen on a galley heading to Alexandria. He would then hold the same position on another galley going to Flanders, which is in modern-day Belgium. It was at this point that scandal engulfed Catamosto's family. His father would be caught up in a bribery scheme and be banished from Venice. The family property would be seized by rivals, and Catamosto's father would flee to the Duchy of Modena in northwest Italy. 
The disgrace of Catamosto's father changed the life of his children as they were suddenly thrust out into the world and had to make their way on their own. Catamosto would try to make his mark as a merchant, saying, quote, My constant attention was, in the first place, to acquire wealth, and secondly, to procure fame. End quote. The naked ambition of a disgraced son of a nobleman is a wonderful thing. It puts a chip on a man's shoulder and makes them willing to do just about anything to win back the family birthright. Anyhow, with his prospects not so bright, Catamosto and his brother Antonio would, in August of 1454, sail on a Venetian galley bound for Flanders. This meant going through the Strait of Gibraltar and sailing up the European coast. However, his ship would be forced to take refuge in Portugal due to bad weather. There, agents of Henry the Navigator, upon hearing that there were Venetian merchants in port, went and visited them, looking to broker some potential trade deals. From Henry's representatives, Catamosto learned about the extensive work done by Portuguese explorers. He learned about the unknown nations and great rivers and islands that awaited those bold enough to go looking, and he was told these voyages could easily make 700 or even a 1,000% profit. This was exciting stuff for an adventurous 22-year-old who was on the lookout for a way to score a bit of fame and fortune. He was so enthralled by the stories told to him that he said he was, quote, inflamed with the desire of visiting these newly discovered regions, end quote. I should point out that Henry was eager to engage men such as Catamosto. Even though he was young, Catamosto had invaluable experience as a sailor, a soldier, and as a merchant, and the Venetians were amongst the most successful traders in the Mediterranean. Catamosto's noble lineage probably didn't hurt either, as Henry likely viewed the young man as a social peer. So, Catamosto had a nice resume, and Henry offered him a gig. It was to sail south to the region around Senegal and trade Iberian horses, which were highly valued by the native peoples, for things such as slaves, gold, and ivory. Catamosto was also to explore further down the coast if possible, and inquire about the availability of gold in the region. Now, Henry would typically give men such as Catamosto one of two options. With the first, Henry would provide the ship and cover the cost of outfitting it. In this case, all revenues were split 50-50. With the second option, Henry would provide the ship, but the partner, in this case Catamosto, would cover the expenses of outfitting the vessel. If this was done, Catamosto would owe Prince Henry only one quarter of the revenues of the voyage. I'm not sure which option Catamosto selected, but that really doesn't matter, as he would accept the job. The goods that he had on board the Venetian galley bound for Flanders were sold, and he threw himself into getting ready for his new assignment. As a note, I am not sure what Catamosto's brother, Antonio, did at this point, as there is not any further mention of the man. There's a good chance that he stayed in Portugal and engaged in commerce in some fashion, but we just don't know for sure. Catamosto would be given a single ship for this voyage. We don't know its name, but it was a 43-ton caravel. The ship's master was Vicente Diaz. It would probably have had a crew of 30 to 40 men, and there was at least one African native who would serve as a translator for when they reached the Senegal region. The 23-year-old Catamosto would depart from Lagos in southwest Portugal on March 22, 1455. The little caravel would make good time and reach Porto Santo in the Madeira Islands three days later. Almost immediately, we find Catamosto has a unique voice. His writings reflect a man who was trained as a merchant and a man who was immensely curious about the world. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of Marco Polo. When he arrives at a place, he takes note of the people, the customs, and of course, the commercial possibilities. Remember, Catamosto grew up in a family of merchants, so as soon as he arrives, he begins writing down the stuff that is important to him. At Port Santo, he takes note of the cattle and hogs, as well as a valuable resin called dragon's blood. He also mentions the excellent honey and wax produced on the island, albeit in small amounts. 
When the ship moves on to Madeira Island, he immediately highlights the timber, which was cedar and would come in handy building Portugal's growing fleet. Also on Madeira Island, Catamosto talked about the growing sugar and wine industries. He also provides an insight that I find rare from an explorer at this time. He reported that the island's harvest, wheat and so forth, was only half of what it had been 25 years previous. This was due to over-farming. As I said, it's a really interesting thing for a sea captain and merchant to not only go out of his way to find out this information, but to write it down. Catamosto would depart the Madeiras and make for the Canary Islands about 300 miles or 480 kilometers to the south. The Canaries consist of 10 main islands, all populated at this time. The Spanish, however, had only settled and conquered four of them. Catamosto would land on a couple of the islands, likely to gather water and timber, but he did not try and step on the toes of the Spanish. He would, however, take time to describe his environment and the people in it, and it's pretty amazing he took interest in this stuff. He notes that most of the villages were open, except in the mountains, where they built wooden palisades. The population on Grand Canary was between eight and 9,000, while the largest of the islands, Tenerife, had 15,000. As for the natives, he describes many of their customs, saying they practiced polygamy and there were a myriad of religions. He describes the people as agile and athletic. It was not uncommon for the Spanish or the Portuguese to try and capture some of the natives on the unclaimed islands and bring them back to Europe as slaves. So, from the Canaries, Catamosto would sail east toward Africa and reach Cape Bojador, a journey of around 100 miles or 160 kilometers. From there, they would head south to the Bay of Arguin, about 570 miles or 915 kilometers. The Portuguese had a trading post on Arguin Island, but it's unclear if Catamosto stopped there. However, he talks about the importance of the post. The natives of the area were nomadic Moorish tribes, who are referred to as Berbers and Arabs. These Arabs came to the coast with slaves to sell, as well as other goods, which they transported using camels. Some of the Arabs reportedly came from as far away as the legendary Timbuktu. Kadom also reported that seven to 800 slaves would be traded each year here, and that one good horse could get 10 to 18 slaves. By the way, it was illegal to trade with the natives without a license from Henry. People violating this law face severe punishments, even death. One thing he notes of interest is the trade of ostrich eggs, which Catamosto says were very good. Aside from trading, Catamosto took time to describe the locals as well as some of their unique customs. From Arguin, Catamosto would continue south down the African coast, reaching the Senegal River. This was the dividing line between the Sahara Desert and what the Portuguese called Guinea or Black Africa. He reported that Henry sent several ships each year to the Senegal River to trade. He also notes that the people here were stronger and fitter looking than the desert dwellers. Catamosto did not sail up to Senegal, but continued further south and encountered the first of the sub-Saharan kingdoms. I want to mention that the descriptions of the people in the region get jumbled by Catamosto. Sometimes he refers to an ethnic group, other times to a political entity. As I said, it does get a bit confusing, but it's not a huge deal. Just know that when talking about the local peoples, Catamosto will prove to be a great taker of notes. When he has the chance, he will detail the lives and customs of the local people, and it's a fascinating look into this region before it was heavily influenced by European contact. Anyhow, Catamosto sailed past the Senegal River to a spot just north of the Cape Verde Peninsula. The latter is the westernmost point of continental Africa. Here, the young Venetian would come to the Wolof kingdom of Kayor. The Portuguese had been coming here for about five years and were on good terms with the local king. The king's name was Zucolin, and he was 22 years old. The kingdom, Catamosto said, spanned about 200 miles along the African coast and 200 miles inland. 
Prince Henry had forbidden his captains from taking slaves from this region, as he didn't want to antagonize the king and his chiefs. Instead, he let the locals raid their neighbors for slaves and sell them to the Portuguese. The villages of Kayor consisted of huts with thatched roofs. Even the king's home was simple, although it had a wooden wall surrounding it. Larger villages were often surrounded by a palisade. Ketamosto was surprised to meet the local king, who greeted him warmly. The Venetian would give the king seven horses, along with some woolen goods, in exchange for a hundred slaves. Catamosto would be invited to the man's village, about 25 miles inland, and spend four weeks there as details of the transaction would be finalized and executed. This was approximately November of 1455. During his time in Kaor, Catamosto came to learn a great deal about the region and its people, and I'm going to tell you some of that so you get an understanding of the detail that Catamosto provided. First, regarding the people, he says they wore virtually no clothing and would take four to five baths a day. A big reason for this was the heat, which was stifling. He said the natives were hospitable and talkative, especially the women, who often were singing and dancing. Catamosto would say this about them, quote, The women of this country are very pleasant and merry, end quote. I want to stress that despite these nice comments, Catamosto still did not trust the natives, calling them liars and cheats. The population was mostly Muslim, but Catamosto said that they were not well instructed, which probably meant that they didn't have mosques and did not follow Islamic custom as rigidly as the Muslims of the Middle East or North Africa. The people, as well as the king, Catamosto felt, were open to Christianity, but that might just be a conceit of the author. Catamosto also says that the locals were expert swimmers and recounted one story about needing to get a message to a ship, but it was anchored three miles offshore and the surf was quite violent. Despite this, a couple of the natives would offer to swim out to the ship with the message. Catamosto was astonished that anyone would give this a try, but took them up on the offer. Well, one of the men would have to turn around, but the second would make it and then swim back to the shore with a reply. Catamosto would say this, quote, made me conclude that the Negroes of this coast must be the most expert swimmers in the world, end quote. The locals' diet consisted of beans, millet, nuts, and fruit. Palm wine was a common alcoholic beverage. They raised cows, goats, and oxen, but no sheep as the heat was too great for them. Catamosto even attended some of the local markets and fairs. He said that people came to these from as far as four to five miles away. Most of the dealing was done on the barter system, but Catamosto did note the use of cowrie shells. He was disappointed to not find much gold. By the way, cowrie shells, if you did not know, were used in some places in Africa and Asia as currency. Regarding warfare, Catamosto said the natives wore animal skins for armor and hurled poison-coated darts and wielded swords similar to the Moors of North Africa, probably scimitars. Catamosto and his men would thrill the local people with demonstrations of their crossbows as well as their cannons. None of them had ever seen such a display of thunder and fire. And one other item that astonished the natives? Bagpipes. One of the men on his ship had a set of bagpipes with him, and the natives could not believe the sounds it produced something some people today may argue as well. No shade on any pipers out there. I actually find the bagpipe pretty cool when done properly. Anyways, one other observation I want to share of Catamostos was with regards to the elephant. He took the time to observe them and debunked a couple of myths about the great animals back in Europe. One was the belief that the elephant only slept while standing, and the other was that the elephant couldn't bend its knees. Again, this is not a huge thing, but it is a great example of how observant our Venetian explorer was. Now the final thing I want to mention is about trade in the region, something Catamosto was keenly interested in. Throughout this and all of his voyages, he would learn about the various networks that ran throughout the region. 
Salt was important, coming from the Sahara and being transported to frontier cities such as Timbuktu. And then there was the gold. Catamosta was told much of it came out of the Mali Empire to the south. Like all the items transported north, it would be shipped via caravan to Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco. Not much gold had found its way to Senegal, but that was changing as trade with the Portuguese increased. So Catamosto would, after 28 days, depart, having obtained 100 slaves as part of his deal with the local king. Instead of heading back to Portugal, he would go south, his interest piqued by the reports of another kingdom called Gambia. Catamosto would sail past Cape Verde, where he likely stopped at the Portuguese outpost on Gori Island. It was around here that Catamosto would encounter two other Portuguese caravels, both sent by Henry to explore the coast. One of the commanders we don't know anything about, but the other was a man named Antonioso Oso Dumare, a 39-year-old Genoese trader. Oso Dumare had fled Genoa in 1450 to escape his creditors. Like Catamosto, he had come into Henry's service as a way to make money. The men would elect to sail together, and thus the three ships would head south in search of the kingdom of Gambia and the great river it supposedly encompassed. Along the way, they would come to a smaller river that flowed into the interior of the continent. The Portuguese had been warned about the people who lived here. They had resisted attempts by the kingdoms of the north to conquer them. Their lands were thick with lakes and woods and streams, which gave them great security. They were reputed to be a cruel people who used poison arrows. Well, at this river, the Portuguese would send one boat ashore. In the boat was one of the native interpreters and some soldiers. The idea was to try and make contact and find out if the locals had any gold trade. Well, once on shore, the native interpreter would hop out of the boat and approach the locals. And in a flash, an ambush was unleashed, the interpreter slaughtered by men carrying Moorish swords. The soldiers in the boat had no chance of helping the interpreter and would beat a hasty retreat. Convinced that these people weren't worth their time, Catamosto and Oso de Mare would keep going south. Well, about 90 miles, or 150 kilometers, past Cape Verde, the three ships would come to a great river. This was the Gambia. Excited at the discovery, the explorers would head up river. As we have talked about in the past on this show, rivers meant opportunities. People lived on rivers, and commerce flowed up and down rivers. The Portuguese had heard stories about the gold mines of the region, and they hoped that this was their ticket to finding them. It would not be long before the European ships would encounter natives in their long canoes, which could carry as many as 20 to 30 men. Catamosto and the Portuguese were wary, as there were rumors that they used poison arrows and darts. The interpreters would attempt to open negotiations with the natives, who were mostly from the Mandinka tribe. After initially being ignored, the Portuguese inquiries would be answered with arrow fire. Soon more native boats would arrive, and a fight was on. Catamosto said that there were upwards of 15 boats swarming towards them, the natives unleashing arrows on the newcomers. The Portuguese would respond in kind. Arrows were let loose, and cannons were fired. The native boats focused their attack on the smallest of the Portuguese caravels, but they didn't have enough manpower to overwhelm the vessel. They would eventually retreat after suffering many casualties. The Portuguese would have no injuries. Catamosto and Uso de Mare would press their way up the Gambia a short ways, but they would get no respite from the hostile natives. They did learn that the locals had been told that Christians were cannibals, and thus they thought that the Portuguese only wanted to trade for slaves so that they could eat them. No matter, in the face of such unrelenting hostility, the Portuguese would elect to turn back. By the way, at the mouth of the Gambia River, Catamosto noted the near disappearance of the northern pole star on the horizon, and made a rough sketch of a bright constellation to the south. This is believed to be the first depiction of the Southern Cross constellation. From here, the three Portuguese ships would return to Europe. 
There's nothing said about the return journey by Catamosto, and there's nothing much said about the success of the voyage other than Henry was pleased. The prince was also happy that Catamosto and Oso de Mare were eager to make a return voyage to the Gambia River. Their orders from Henry were to try and open up trade on the river. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For this second voyage, it would be Catamosto and Oso de Mare, as well as a third ship under the command of a Portuguese captain whose name we do not know. The three would depart from Lagos, Portugal in May of 1456. The three vessels made straight for the Gambia River with no trading stops along the way likely on Henry's orders. However, while rounding Cape Verde, the little fleet would get caught up in a big storm, which would last for two days and three nights. It would drive the ships to the west about 300 miles, or 480 kilometers. And then, when the sea calmed, they would sight two islands not on their charts. This would be the Cape Verde Archipelago, which consists of ten volcanic islands. The ships would find anchorage and land a party of ten men armed with crossbows to investigate. The party would trek up to a high vantage point, and from there sight two more islands in the distance. All of these islands would prove to be uninhabited. Catamosto reported that he found a pigeon on one island that was so docile the birds just let the Portuguese walk right up to them and take hold of them. The merchant in Catamosto would, as you would expect, take note of the commercial possibilities. He said the waters around the islands were teeming with fish, and one of the islands had salt deposits. Another had a great number of turtles, which the Portuguese would feast on. Catamosto would compare turtle meat favorably to veal. The three ships would remain at the newly discovered islands for two days before departing for Africa. The discovery of the Cape Verde Islands was a nice feather in the cap of Catamosto and Usa de Mare, but they were not going to find gold or slaves there, so the commercial possibilities were limited, at least for now. Portugal would begin colonizing the islands in 1462, and they would prove to be critical as they were positioned strategically on the great trade routes between Africa, Europe, Asia, and the New World. So, on to Africa when our explorers. They would reach the coast and head south, eventually returning to the Gambia River, which they had found the previous year. Now, last time the natives had been hostile to the Portuguese, but on this voyage things were different. For whatever reason, the natives offered to barter. The Portuguese coaxed some of the more adventurous men on board their ship and gave them gifts, the fleet's interpreters then sent these men back to their tribal leaders, telling them that they wanted to trade. And in this fashion, the Portuguese would continue up the Gambia. The native peoples were mostly Mandinka and were subjects to the Mali Empire. I want to mention that while the people were subjects of a larger political entity, the Mali Empire, there were many different kingdoms under that greater banner. This was common in this area of Africa. There were many kings and estates and so forth, but there was often a greater ruler. Depending on the place, the greater king's power was often limited within those vassal states. It wasn't like the Portuguese king, who held absolute rule throughout his nation. Here, there was a lot of nuance to the words king and kingdoms. 
No matter, the Portuguese would push up the river about 60 miles and stay with a Mandinka king called Batamansa, which means king of the Bati. They would stay there for 11 days and trade with the locals. Catamosto would be disappointed by the lack of gold that he found. In fact, he said the locals valued it as highly, or more so, than the Portuguese. The Portuguese would trade for some slaves, as well as food, animals, and skins. They would also get a particular musk, which was highly valued by perfumers in Europe. As on his previous voyage, Catamosto went into depth when describing the people he encountered. They hunted with javelins and bows and arrows, and often used poison on their weapons. He said that there were many religions, but Islam was the most common. Catamosto also spoke of the massive trees on the river, as well as the elephants and hippos, the latter he called horsefish. One local chief gave Catamosto a gift of an elephant foot and part of an elephant trunk. He would bring them back to Portugal and give them to Prince Henry as a gift. Catamosto and Usudamare wanted to continue up the Gambia River, but then illness struck the fleet as many of the men became racked by fevers, nausea, and aches and pains. Malaria had struck. Looking to get out of the stifling and suffocating heat, Catamosto would retreat down the Gambia to the ocean, where the men's sufferings gradually subsided. From here, the small fleet would elect to continue south, conducting some more exploring. In doing so, they were pushing beyond the edge of the map as known to Europeans. The explorers would come across two rivers, the Casamance and the Kashu, and they would reach Cape Hoshu, which marks the border between modern-day Senegal and Guinea-Bissau. And then, around 180 miles, or 290 kilometers, south of the Gambia River, they would come upon another river, which they called the Rio Grande, but today is called the Geba River. The river's mouth is located in what today is Guinea-Bissau. The local people came out in their canoes to greet the Portuguese ships, but it was quickly apparent that there was a problem. The Portuguese translators could not understand the native peoples. This made trade difficult, and it made finding out about the whereabouts of the rumored gold mines of the region impossible. The Portuguese would spend two days at the mouth of the Geba before deciding to sail out to some islands off the coast of the continent. These were the Basagos Islands, which consist of 88 islands and are about 30 miles offshore. Many of these islands were populated, but as with the natives of the Geba River, the Portuguese explorers could not translate their language. With no hope of being able to communicate effectively anywhere to the south, Catamosto and Uso de Mare, along with our unnamed Portuguese captain, would elect to head back to Portugal. Our story ends there, rather abruptly, as Catamosto did not record anything else about his journey. However, we do have a clue that shows it was successful, at least financially. I'll get to that in a moment. So with Catamosto's journey complete, I'm not going to add much more about the broader picture of Portuguese exploration at this time, as that's all really part of the Henry the Navigator series. However, I do have a few things to talk about before we conclude. First, I will give you what information we know about Antonioto Usadamari, as he was an interesting character. Second, I will do the same thing with Catamosto. And third, I'll talk a little about the legacy of Catamosto and how it relates to the bigger picture of exploration at this time. So first, Antonioto Usadamare. Our captain had made enough money from his voyages to Africa that he could pay off his creditors back in Genoa. We know this because between his two voyages, he would write a letter to those creditors telling them about his exploits and how that voyage and his upcoming journey were going to make him a lot of money, and thus he could repay his debts. This letter, by the way, still exists. It was found in 1800 by a Swedish merchant living in Genoa who was going through the city's archives. The letter is in garbled Latin and, unfortunately, wildly inaccurate. And thus we have to take it with a grain of salt. 
Usa Damare doesn't even mention Catamosto in his letter, and he exaggerates his accomplishments or flat-out lies. He says that he nearly reached the realm of Prester John, as well as the seat of the Mali Empire. No matter, we know that Usa Damare would make enough money from the two voyages to pay his creditors because he finally returned to Genoa in 1458. This is the clue I was referring to earlier when I said the voyages were financially successful. Usa Damare would take a position as an agent of a commercial house in the Genoese colony of Kaffa on the Black Sea and then die a few years later in 1462 at the age of 45 or 46. Today, Usa Damare is remembered as one of the co-discoverers of the Cape Verde Islands and one of the first Europeans to travel up the Gambia River. The Italian Navy named a destroyer after him in 1929, but the ship, the Antonioto Usa Damare, was sunk in 1942. So that is it for Genoese explorer Antonioto Oso de Mare. Back to the focus of this episode, Alvise Catamosto. Catamosto would return to Portugal, and there is no evidence that he ever sailed to Africa for a third time. However, he would remain in Portugal for a few years, living in Lagos. It was likely he was involved in trade in some fashion. With Henry's death in 1460, his monopoly on African trade would revert back to the Portuguese crown. This meant that the focus of African trade and exploration would shift from Lagos to Lisbon. Catamosto would thus depart Portugal and return to Venice in 1463. In doing this, he would bring with him all his records and logbooks and journals from his voyages. And from this, he would write a book called Navigazioni. He did this, probably, to make sure everyone knew how important he was and to boost the reputation of his family name. But the record of his voyages was so much more, especially compared to other writers from this time. As we have seen, he would provide invaluable information about the peoples and cultures that lived in West Africa, and his hand and attitudes is quite even in his descriptions, another remarkable thing. There are not many books written about exploration from this area, but Navigazioni is one of the best. The others are simply inaccurate and unreliable. And while Catamosto's work is not perfect, it is quite good, especially when looking at the time and place it was written. Navigazioni would be published in the mid-1460s, and it is believed that Catamosto provided much of the information for cartographer Grazioso Benincasa's 1468 atlas that depicted West Africa quite accurately. Now aside from writing his book, Catamosto would basically do what he set out to do when he left Venice as the son of a disgraced nobleman. He had gained fame and fortune. He returned to Venice, recovered some of his family property, and a few years later married a rich Venetian noblewoman, Elisabetta di Giorgio Venier. His wife, however, was of frail health, and thus the couple would have no children. So, with his family name and fortune rescued, Catamosto would set himself up as a merchant and later as a diplomat and administrator for the Republic of Venice. He traded in Spain, Egypt, Syria, and England. In 1479, he was placed in charge of developing a plan for the defense of Albania from the Ottomans. And then in 1481, he was elected captain of the Venetian Alexandria galley fleet. So it seems he had done pretty well for himself. Catamosto would die in 1483 while on a diplomatic mission in northern Italy. He was approximately 56 years old. And that, my friends, is the life of Venetian explorer Alvise Catamosto. Let's wrap up by talking about the man's legacy. So on his report card, we can give Catamosto the following good marks. He, along with Antonioto Usidamare, were the first recorded Europeans to reach and explore the Gambia River. They also went on to become the first Europeans to reach the Cashew, Casamansa, and Geba rivers, as well as Cape Hoshu and the Bisagos Islands. And finally, the two men would discover the Cape Verde Islands. In reaching the Geba River, 
Catamosto had gone approximately 2,000 miles, or 3,300 kilometers, down the West African coast. That was further than anyone in the world at the time. Beyond the physical discoveries, the other great legacy of Catamosto is his book, Navigazioni. It provided a unique look into the world of an explorer during the early years of the Age of Discovery. And the book didn't just provide the places they went, it gave us details about the peoples and cultures they encountered along the way. And that is very unique, especially for the time. Now I do want to note that all of this detail helps us understand the roots of the transatlantic African slave trade, which would explode in the coming centuries. And it exposes the almost casual indifference there was towards the institution of slavery. You want to make some money? Become a slaver. 700 or more percent profits. That was the attitude here. Slaves just get put on a list right next to spices and ivory and gold. They are just commodities. But we can never forget that these are people. So the final thing about Catamosto I'll mention is this idea that his voyage, because we have a record of it, is a great representation of the voyages of the era. And I think this is really important. So often these men are a line in a history book, if that. Such and such explorer sailed to such and such a place in such and such a year. But that's about it. I think it's really cool to understand what these people did. We cannot forget that this was a dangerous job, and many of these men never returned. So to have Catamosto's story is a nod to all the explorers of this place and era. So that is it, the life and voyages of Alvise Catamosto, and to a lesser degree, his sailing buddy, Antonio Usadamare. I hope you've enjoyed this series. As I said from the start, I think this works as a nice companion piece to the Henry the Navigator series. Thanks again for joining me on the Explorers podcast. Please take care, and I will see you next time.